I do believe that we should create conditions where people should be heard and where personal safety is important and where people feel like they can contribute their best work. Right. It has to be done within a container of I'm producing working tests. Yeah, we have to get work done. And and we're actually producing what we said we would in market. Right. And does that mean that sometimes we're going to be under pressure? Yes. Does that mean sometimes work's going to be uncomfortable? Yes. Right. But that's where the 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 two or four sides of the culture I was talking about come in. It's like you have to balance what I I would consider the emotional controlling, non-controlling um lenses with the logical side, which is about results. Right. And that's the divide in culture as I poke into this that I see um so often. It's just based upon our biases, it's like we index to one side of culture or the other. Dave Pryor, welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes, take five. Mike Kottmeyer is here. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your day. I'm very happy to be here for the fifth time. It's all good. So, yeah. <laughs> And you're freshly back from Europe. Freshly back from Europe. Went over to Belgium, got to visit Brussels and Antwerp and a really cool medieval town called Bruges, I think, or Bruges, um, and then was in some other city that I don't know the name of. So just in the middle of nowhere for the meeting. So so I got to do a little bit of work and a little bit of sightseeing, and it was cool. So it was my first time to Belgium. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, welcome yeah. back. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about a topic and see what happens when we talk about it. It might be yeah. kind of volatile. Yeah, um, it might be. But yeah. I've been engaged in a couple conversations this week with people where the center of the conversation has been around the layoffs that have been happening to agile coaches, yeah. what that means for businesses. Jesse Fuel is doing research on what happens after all the agile people leave. Okay. Um, and that's kind of got me locked in this kind of thing where I'm really stuck on why are these things happening? Because it's not just the layoffs. It's also the getting rid of the scrum masters and replacing them with technical program managers and combining PO and scrum master and all these practices that anybody who's been doing this for more than five minutes, I think would be standing there looking at it going, what the hell are you doing? Right. Right. There's got to be a reason. I mean, people at the top of those companies are smart people. Yeah. So I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Um, like the the challenge the challenge that we have in the industry right now is that is that we have a lot of people that know how to how to do agile. Uh-huh. We don't have a lot of people that know how to build software, right? Okay. We don't have a lot of people that know how to run projects, and so and so, and even even in saying that, like I'm going to get backlash. So, but that was but that was I want to say that I want to say that one again. I want to emphasize that one. They know yeah. how to do agile. They don't know how to build software. They, they don't, don't know how to run projects. projects. Right. Okay. And so there's a belief. There's a belief that if we trust the teams, we empower the people, that the people that are closest to the work are going to know how to do the software. Mm-hmm. And and that it's just all going to be rainbows and butterflies. And in the vast majority of organizations that are trying to adopt agile right now, and, and again, I, I feel like I say the same things every week. Um, the ecosystems to do agile well are not in place. Right. <clears throat> and if you don't know, if you don't know what a good environment looks like, and you've been told, and you go into support groups, and you go into Scrum Master groups, and you've been to Scrum Master training, and you do all these things, and everybody's telling you, if you just empower the teams, if you just trust people, the people yeah. closest to work know how to do their stuff. <clears throat> you believe it, right? And so. 
I think we've got a lot of really naive practitioners out there that are beating the drum really, really hard on okay. the methodologies that they've been taught. And and I think when when things were good, I think there was a lot of patience for it, right? People want to believe. They want to believe okay. if management steps back, if management doesn't do anything, if management just trusts the people, that the people are going to figure it out. And and so like everybody's a little bit complicit, right? The the training industry is complicit. The leadership's complicit. The people yeah. that are work are complicit. The scrum masters are complicit. But in a lot of environments, it's not producing the results that we want. And, okay. and it's like when it's not producing the results, what do you do? Like, what do we do? You go back to right? what you knew, yeah. You go back to what you knew. Or, but see, but the answer isn't to go back to what you knew. The um this is this is where this this conversation gets tough, right? Because it's like it's like you have to start. It it's like, okay, so so like there's this um there's this thought exercise that I do with people. I've done it in a minute, but there's this thought exercise I do if I get to walk into a user group somewhere. And I ask them, I say, okay, cool. So let's say you could walk in to any organization and you could magically wave a wand and everybody would totally get agile. All the culture would shift. All the leadership would become empowering. There wouldn't be any command and control. We'd lift all corporate governance. We'd lift lift, lift all budgetary and compliance concerns. Yeah. Uh, and we just let the teams just inspect and adapt. Okay, let's just say you got your culture change instantly overnight. Okay. But the requirement is, is that in three months, you have to deliver a release of working tested software. And you get bonus points if you can actually tell the company what they're going to get in three months for their money. But, but when you wave the wand, the technical debt didn't go away. And the technical and debt the, didn't go away. And the, the layered architecture didn't. The layered architectures didn't go away. The 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 cues of defects didn't go away. Then the red, amber, green uh, status reports didn't, didn't, didn't go away. Okay. Right. The unreasonable expectations of customers didn't go away. Right. None of that stuff went away. Yeah. But everybody, everybody believes now. Right. Let's say they didn't hire lay off anybody and they just and they just hired twice as many scrum masters. Yeah. Right. What would we go do? Okay. So let's assume we get the culture change overnight, right? You get right. to lift your fingers and and everything, everything that you think is a barrier gets lifted is lifted. Okay. You say, what would you do? What do you do tomorrow when you show up for work? You got to change everything that you're the entire working system well, you're in. But what do you but what do you change it to? And over what timeline do you change it? Because here's this is what the agile community's been able to um, play on. It's you get like one of the things I've been saying to people a lot lately is if if you replaced cultural resistance, the idea of cultural resistance, yeah, and you and you replaced it with cognitive dissonance, and it's like okay. you just assume that people aren't resistant because they they are trying to be difficult or they're trying to be command and control or they're trying right. to be a power or they're tr- whatever negative thing we put on people and you just say they just don't understand yeah right like one of the things i think about right and i've been thinking about this and this this is probably going to go in a weird direction because you get me on something i'm really passionate about because it, it frustrates me as somebody who gives a shit about this industry and about what we do and the potential for positive change that we've been able to achieve yeah. Right. Or the potential we've been able to offer. <clears throat> and 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 this this balance between like the the 
the cultural and practices versus the systems and the the architecture and everything, the balance between that. Yeah. It's like I think that that people they don't know. I think the answer, Dave, is they don't know what to do. And and the the cognitive dissonance in these organizations has been so loud. Yeah. They've been able to label it as culture or people that don't want to change. And 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 they don't know how to bridge the cognitive dissonance. So they blame the leaders. And and then and then so in blaming the leaders, they get to be like revolutionaries inside the company and say, well, if it just wasn't for these leaders, yeah. if it wasn't for these people that are in our that way, guy. it would yeah. be uh, it would be great. Yeah. Well, well, OK. But what would you go do to make it great? Yeah. I mean, because you have a constraints of a business. You say, well, we shouldn't do big software. We should do small software. We shouldn't have big teams. We should have small teams. It's like, like what I almost want to say, I was actually thinking about this the other day on the plane. It's like, it's like anything that you believe should be true in a company, anything that you believe that should be true. And let's say you got permission to make it true. How would you go about making it true? I don't think you can look at it like you're going to turn one thing because there's it's it's the whole it's not culture by itself it's not the system by itself it's not any one of those things you mentioned by itself it's all those things and turning them all at the same time is almost impossible. Well, well okay then cool then what then what are the coaches there for? Why, why Well no I, I'm I, almost impossible doesn't mean we don't try. Curing well, cancer well, is almost impossible. It doesn't is, mean we don't this try. Is what I, this is what I think, right? So actually I did this talk, the talk that I did when I was over in Belgium for this company I was working with. And this will be kind of an interesting because I'm, I'm actually practicing some language around this, right? I've been going off for years that this idea of culture first transformation is going to kill us. Right. Because, because, because again, at the point that you lift the cultural constraint and you lift the the attitude, you still have the other problems. You still yeah. have the other set of problems, right? And and people don't know what to do, what to go do about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so and so, I was actually you'll get, actually get a kick out of this. So you know, internally to leading agile, we use this assessment called a color code, mm-hmm. and it's one of four personality, intellectual, EQ type assessments that we do. And this particular one, I and like, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's 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 very heavily kind of built on the same science as DISC. It was created to like evaluate salespeople 30 years ago or something. Very, very not very mainstream, but I picked up on it and I like it. And it basically measures people on whether they're logically controlling, emotionally controlling, um, uh, logically non-controlling, emotionally non-controlling. And so you end up with like logical controlling is red, logically non-controlling is white, emotionally controlling is blue, emotionally non-controlling is yellow. I am the yeah. most blue. And so, and I think even within those, you have kind of like healthy expressions of it and you have um, unhealthy expressions of it. So I'm very high red, right? So very logically controlling. Um, I'm about building systems, you know, putting people in pockets, holding them accountable, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that can that can go bad <laughs> and, and with the wrong leadership, right? Um, and then, you know, white tends to be very kind of rule following, Yellow tends to be unstructured and, and fun. And then blue, which you're heavy on the blue, is um, I need you to be okay. Like I want to create environments where um, you want to be there and where we're connected and all that kind of stuff. So um, what I was making the case for this group of leaders is that because one of the things I've been doing, I've been running around asking people, what's culture? And and it's and it's interesting to me that 
that the definition of culture is all over the place. Yeah. And I think our definitions of culture and the things that resonate with us in culture are tied to personality. Mm-hmm. And so I made this case that you have blue culture, which is logically controlling or excuse me, emotionally controlling culture. And then you have red culture, which is logically controlling culture. Mm-hmm. I think actually the more I thought about it and after I did the talk, I think you have yellow culture, which is emotionally non-controlling. And you have yeah. and you have um, white culture, which is logically non-controlling. I have worked at all so, of those kinds of companies. Yeah. So so if it's yellow, it's all about fun. It's all about, you know, you know, how well we get along, right? All that kind of stuff. If if it's blue culture, it tends to be more about everybody's okay. It's about personal safety, mm-hmm. things like that. If it's white culture, it all ends up being about are we following the rules? Are we doing what we're told to do? That kind of a thing. And then red is are we getting things done? Is it measurable progress? All that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And and this is what I think is is I actually think there's a case to be made that all four aspects of culture do need to be addressed. Yeah, Like I tend to dismiss culture because it tends to be on the emotional side and that's not where I'm at on the spectrum. You need a little bit of all of it. Well, you need a little bit of all of it, right? So intellectually, I understand that. But like I tend not to bias towards the idea of personal safety. Um, I I tend to bias more towards the fun side, right? Um, Because I'm red yellow, right? So I want to- Oh, I'm like 75, (laughs) 25. So, um, So I'm like- so it's like I want to build systems to get things done. Right. I want to make sure things get done. I want to like I want accountability, visibility, transparency, all that kind of stuff. And I want to have a good time doing it for sure. Um, I don't tend to index on personal safety because I don't need a whole lot of it. Right? right. I'm just out there in the throes of things and and I'm not much of a rule follower. Um, so it's like I want to make my own rules kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. So but here's the interesting thing. Right. I think Agile has heavily attracted people that bias towards emotionally controlling, emotionally non-controlling sides of culture. So the things around fun and connection and great work environment, right? It's all important. Yeah. Um, Personal safety, right? All that kind of stuff. It's important, right? But here's the interesting thing. If you have people that have moved into the coaching profession Mm -hmm. and that's what they care about, and and then they don't necessarily know how to improve the systems and to actually get things done. Okay. The underlying belief that they're bringing to the table is that if we create safety with people and they empower and we systems empower people, invent themselves. Those people know what to do. That's not true. And, and I think that we've gotten to a level of complexity in this world and these systems that we're working with where they don't know what to do. So people have lost their craft. They've lost they've lost the technical craft. And yeah. and then the other thing that we did is an industry. I mean, I literally walked into a company one time and I was asking, like, where's all your architects? And we're like, oh, we fired them because Agile didn't need architects. <laughs> and I'm like, well, but I, you, I can t- I can see that. <laughs> You need architecture, right? It's a little bit like, well, maybe we don't need project managers, but we need project management. Yeah. Right. Um, we don't need managers per se, but we need management, right? And so this makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so so what we have is we have a lot of people running around saying, well, if we just create the right emotional environments and the right, yeah, the right emotional environments, whether it yeah. be yellow or blue in my this world, that that things will work itself out. 
um, you know, this this company that we were that I was over talking to, you know, one of the things that we were exploring ahead of my talk was, you know, just the the kind of the cultural nature of the society. And, you know, we're talking about exploring things like leadership styles and conflict styles and things like that. And the leader that I was talking to was saying something to the effect of like, we don't want to get to a point where we have a best effort culture where it's like everybody's safe. There's yeah. no conflict. Everybody well, feels good. All the relationships are awesome. And you know what? We just did the best we could. And you know what? We didn't deliver on time. We didn't deliver with the right quality profiles. We didn't deliver what we said we would deliver, but you know, we all tried. Yeah. Um, that's what's happening. I think in the agile community right now. So I want, yeah, go ahead. I want to ask you a question because this this came into my head a few minutes ago and you just brought this me is back a serious talk. Like I mean, I'm yeah. almost wondering whether we should actually release this. So when this I was serious, a project right? manager, yeah, I considered it my responsibility to not just learn how to be a better project manager, but I had to learn Perl. I had to learn what test driven development was. I had to I had mm -hmm. to learn all that stuff so I could communicate with the people I work with and get my job done. And a little bit was curiosity, but a lot of it was fear. I have to be able to interact and engage with these people. And if I don't speak their language, I can't. I can't get my job done. And the if you create it. a space where I feel so safe, I don't have to do that. I don't remember the last time I had a class where people knew what TDD was. Well, so you think about this, right? So what was it, 22 years ago now, 2021, right. signing the Agile Manifesto? Think about the people that were in that room. Right. Bob Martin, Kent Beck. Alistair Coburn, right? Ron, yeah. Ken Schwaber. Um, I'm trying to think through. I'm thinking through. Ron was there. Right, right, Ron was there. Yeah. Right. right. Um, people that were like deep experts. Mm -hmm. There's something I want to say it was. Um, I want to say it was Ken Beck, but I'm probably going to get it wrong. Maybe it was Ward Cunningham. I, it was like a, it was a quote. It said something like, um, we underestimated how much tacit knowledge was in the room when we invented Agile. Yeah. Right. We underestimated just how much we all deeply, these are my words, right. But how much we all deeply understood the software and the problems and the technology domains and the tools and the techniques, right. So you're dealing with people that are so smart and, and probably what was missing to them. So smart. And they've been down in the kitchen doing the work. Well, What's that again for him? They've been in the kitchen doing all the work. Like they're not only well, smart, well, yeah, they do the job. They're, they're just surrounded. It's it's in their ether, right? Yeah. And and what they were experiencing, and I'm guessing at this point, right? I've I have some knowledge from talking to these guys, but they were they were um what was missing was customer interaction and collaboration. And they were being pulled down these paths of high documentation and they just wanted to be able to interact with their customers and do things do with their job and all these things. Right. I did this talk for the federal reserve in um, San Francisco five or six years ago now. And the point that I was trying to make is that there was so much that was going on in the room, not just with the signing of the manifesto, but in the rooms where they were inventing agile that they just took for granted. Mm -hmm. Like, like one of the things I would say is like, like when you look at the Agile Manifesto, you know, people and in interactions over processes and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over, um, I'm losing my, I'm a, I'm a bad Agilist, man. I lose my manifesto when I try to, when I try to say it, um, you know, responding to change over following a plan, right? 12 yeah. principles behind it. Um, it's like, 
what was taken for granted was that you had like six or eight people that were sitting around the room in a team room. Yeah. You actually had access to an onsite customer that you had um, that you had people that deeply understood the technology stacks. Yeah, you had. And so what they did is they took all that tacit understanding, all of that deep expertise and codified a set of principles and practices and a framework, a set of frameworks around it. Yeah. And now what we have is 22 years later at this point, we have people running around telling us to do daily standup meetings. and and writing user stories and how to do sprint planning. And we think that's agile. They understand the mechanics of the technique, but they're so far removed from what was actually going on in that room Yeah. to, to understand how to apply. So imagine, and this is what, what I think, what I think it's, it's an interesting opportunity and it's a struggle. We have a, we have a small handful. We don't have a ton of um, people out of college, but we have a small handful of people that have been with us since they graduated from college four or five years ago. Yeah. And, and you know, they want to be promoted. They want to progress. And they've been in enough rooms at this point and have seen enough of these problems that um, that they're starting to develop a deep appreciation of the structure, the governance, the metrics, the teams, mm-hmm. the backlogs, the working test software. They start to see the failure modes when these things are done wrong. But can you imagine somebody right out of college that goes into a scrum class? Like we teach some stuff down at several yeah. universities, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're a college student, you're applying scrum to maybe your college work or something like that. And so you think you understand agile because scrum and agile are the same thing nowadays, yeah. right? And so then you go and you apply those into the real world, but you don't understand um, how software is actually built or how software is architected or how you organize teams around architecture. What's the value of Conway's law? Like, yeah, like you but- don't understand the lean principles. You don't understand the rightness and work. You don't understand the history of these methodologies. And so we I want to counter people it. out on the world and they don't know what they're doing. When I moved to Texas, yeah. So I was probably like 29. Yeah. Uh, and I passed my PMP. I ran the PMO at this company and I decided we were going to do every single step in the PMBOK front to back. Like okay, I was right. going to fix yeah. the company. Yeah. That same right. sophomoric approach yeah. without any awareness of what this was going to do to the system yeah. around me. Cause I didn't even know to look. And I quickly learned like, oh, whoops. It took me yeah. a year to recover my credibility, but I had. <clears throat> an opportunity to to make that mistake and yeah. learn deeply from that. I don't, I mean, maybe if, if the college, you know, five, six years out of college people went and tried to implement Scrum and called it agile and realized, Oh crap. Like there's so many things we did forgot to bring with us. You know, so, they have to go figure out what extreme programming actually is. There's, there's something about it. Right. And, and I think it, I think it is, it is like how you and I entered this world versus, versus maybe how some others have entered the world. And I say this, so this isn't a young person versus an old person thing. There's people our age and, you know, young, little younger, a little older that I think still buy into this belief system. Right. And, and it's like you and I, because we grew up in project management, we knew that the job of software was to deliver software right. that we could charge money for. Right. Um, like even as a consultancy, like as passionate as I am about doing the right thing, if we don't figure out how to charge money for it and if we're not profitable, we don't get to stay in business. 
And, and it was all about delivery. And we were very aware of time, cost, and scope and managing triple constraints. Mm-hmm. And you and I have been around this long enough where we deeply understand the theory. We understand where it came from, how to apply it. Right? Why it changed. Yeah, all that. Why it changed. What was the drivers behind it changed. Imagine if you were just like, if you were, if you were bought into the religion of it. And, and that's what I think is, is happened, right? As I think, I think it's become a religion. Um, I was in one of our our previous false starts around this. I did, um, you know, our marketing team put a post up on LinkedIn and it was talking about the importance of systems and structures. Yeah. And if you don't get the systems and structures right, right. And in our world, that's the teaming strategies where backlogs come from, how you produce a working test and increment at the end of every right. sprint. You don't get um, groups of teams aligned. You don't get the flow of work at higher levels, working structure, governance metrics, right. Then just like, there's just no amount of practice and culture, right? That's kind of the typical leading out of mantra. And, and that just got, I probably had 80 or 90. I haven't even looked at it in a couple of weeks. Maybe it's more, but people basically just telling me I'm a dumbass. And, and, you know, the one that really um, entertained me a little bit was this, it said, you know, tell me, you know, nothing about agile without saying, you know, you know, nothing about agile. And, and I was just like, you know, the irony of this, Right. Um, we have a legion of people that are so bought into the religion of Scrum and Agile mm-hmm. that they it's about doing they, Agile, not they take the dogma. Software. They take the dogma of Agile at face value. Yeah. Um, and you know, at the risk of um, you know, at the risk of of alienating some of our listeners, um, you know, the religious community has similar challenges, right? Like the the formal religious community, and you know, I happen to be Catholic. It's no, no big, you know, I don't I don't mind talking about that. Um, but but regardless of your beliefs in this world, you know, a lot of these faith traditions were based upon what were very foundational truths, or at least what we believe to be very foundational truths. Mm-hmm. And they get instantiated into rule systems. And then over time, what happens is people forget the deep underlying truths, and all they do is hang on to the rule systems. And we have a bunch of people running around that are applying rules in the absence of any truth. Yes. Right. And 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 again, I, you know, on all these podcasts, I quote, I, I feel so lucky that I entered the agile community when I did because I was reading Highsmith and I was reading Beck and I was reading um, Fowler and Poppendick and Alistair Coburn's stuff and Schwaber and Sutherland. I was and all these guys were writing Ron Jeffries chat. Right. They're all writing these books. And I was reading all of them and, and really understanding the deep underlying theory. So so then it was like when I started to be able to apply it into agile teams, I could look at it and I could go, well, these conditions that are necessary for this stuff to work don't exist. So then I go like, well, okay, do I do I am I able to change the conditions or do I change the methodology? Right. And and I was able to apply them dynamically. Oh, now I have to deal with this level of scale. I have to deal with cross team coordination. You know, that's where a lot of. um you know, David Anderson's Kanban work or, you know, even getting into like the the theory of constraint stuff and, you know, Eli Goldratt and Wrightinson stuff. And, yeah. and then, you know, all this stuff comes along and you're and you're looking like, OK, OK, do I have the conditions to create this? Do I like and so it's like you just grew up in this. And so after 25 years of doing it, you deeply understand, well, do I change the ecosystem or do I change the practice? But you can't expect that of somebody who's 26 years old. Well, you can't. But 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 I'll tell you, it's not just young people, right? I think we have a lot of naive, um, you know, cotton tops out here too, right? Can, like, um, 
I want, so, to go, I want to ask you a question. I want to go yeah. back to the comment when people were taking you, having at you on LinkedIn or wherever yeah. it was. Um, I get the whole culture argument, but I, I can't imagine. I mean, some of those people are smart people. Some of the culture mm-hmm. first people are, and yeah. I have respect for them, but me, me too. I can't me too. imagine that they would think that the system itself doesn't matter. Well, well, so, but here's the interesting thing, right? As, as people that have been around the block a lot, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, like anybody that's that's doing podcast, at least people that we've known for a long time, right? People we've been hanging out with at conferences and watching speak. And we people all kind that of give a shit and spend time thinking about it. Yeah, like I would give you, like I would give you a for example. Um, you know, like somebody who I have deep respect for. Um, publicly, we tend to be on opposite sides of things. I think I like Elisa Atkins. Right. Okay. Deep respect for Lisa Atkins. Right. The what she leads with in terms of messaging is not what I lead with in terms of messaging. Right. But but when you sit down with Lisa, but you she's both come from the same background. Long time, right? Yeah. And, and she deeply understands that she has a different point of entry into the conversation. Right. Than I do, right. But but now imagine, right? Now imagine that you're not as deeply experienced as Lisa. You don't understand all the things that she understands. Been around this community and the this software industry for as long as she has. And you just take the surface of what she's saying mm-hmm. and you run with it. You know, for that matter, you take the surface of what I say sometimes and you run with it, right? It's an incomplete picture of the whole. Yeah. Right. And and what I think is, is I think, you know, so going back to your original question, like yeah. why are people getting laid off? Dude, I can't tell you how many times we walk in to companies that are trying to do this and their coaches and scrum masters that they have on the ground that are permanent employees are in open like like resistance mode. They're 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 like they're like fomenting a revolution inside companies. Like I know I know coaches, thankfully not that have that have worked for us. But coaches in the industry that go in and turn development teams against their leaders, mm-hmm. right? Because um, you know, there was this this one gentleman who who I'll I'll leave nameless on this one. Um, I went and visited him at a coach's camp, gosh, it must be 10 years ago now or something, because I was just interested in how he thinks about the world. Okay. And and his view of it, it was very much like a human rights view of the world. Like, like people have a right to be heard. People have a right to be listened to. They have a right to have a voice in the office and they have a right to self-determinism and all these different things. And I was like, it was just interesting to me because because i do believe that we should create conditions where people should be heard and where personal safety is important and where people feel like they can contribute their best work right it has to be done within a container of i'm producing working tests yeah we have to get work done and and we're actually producing what we said we would in market right and does that mean that sometimes we're going to be under pressure yes does that mean sometimes work's going to be uncomfortable yes Right. But that's where the, the the two or four sides of the culture I was talking about come in. It's like you have to balance what I, I would consider the emotional controlling, non-controlling um, lenses with the logical side, which is about results. Right. And that's the divide in culture as I poke into this that I see um, so often 
it's just based upon our biases. It's like we index to one side of culture or the other. And, and yeah, go ahead. And I tend to index more towards the getting stuff done side of culture. How much of it do you think is also just an abandonment of common sense in favor of following the rule book or the practices? Well, but I mean, think about humans do that all the time in the absence of understanding, right? So if I'm a person who doesn't deeply, okay, it'd probably be two different things. If I don't either deeply understand how software gets built or I don't have that understanding coupled with the agency to actually change anything. Yeah. Right. I want to be successful doing what I'm doing. I want to feel good about doing what I'm doing. So I start to find successes. How well do I follow this process? Yeah. How well, how well do I dot the I's and cross the T's? Yeah. And then traditional project management is the same thing, right? Like I can't tell you how many project managers I would sit in a room with, you know, back in the day. And, and like, literally their job was to fill out the charter form, mm-hmm. to fill out the requirements form. And, and I would, and I'd want to, you know, just scream at people and say, look, the charter document is, is a framework to help you create shared understanding, yeah, um, shared agreement across all of those stakeholders about how this thing, how this project's going to run. Right. Or how this team's going to operate, or or what it is that we're going to do, and it's the negotiation of the agreement that is the goal. The document is an artifact of that agreement. And so now imagine a world, right? I don't know how to broker agreement from people that are more powerful than me, that are smarter than me, right. that have more um, background than me, have more history than me. So now I'm this mid-level project manager so i go well my pmo told me i need a charter the form yeah exactly i'm gonna fill out the form right we build those airplanes out of whatever we got available and and it's this it's the same thing it's the same thing in the agile world too right it's like i don't know how to actually build software but i know how to facilitate a daily stand-up meeting and make people stand around for 15 minutes and answer three questions and and I might know how to facilitate a sprint planning meeting. I might know some retrospective techniques. Right? I'm not saying this stuff's not valuable, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's only valuable if if you're using it to build software. So if I'm going to let go of all my agile people and give mm-hmm. it back to the PMO, I'm doing that because the PMO, PMO knows how to get shit done. So we're not getting anything done now. We're busy running around in circles trying I to feel safe. I will tell you the current state of, of what's going on in agile, like I would rather have... I would rather have a well-designed. Okay, so this is what I'll say. So in our world, we have this base camp one, base camp two idea. Yeah. Sometimes what I'll describe is base camp one is team-based delivery using Scrum with a Kanban-based program portfolio investment tier riding on top of it. 18-month roadmaps, three to six-month release plans, um, rolling wave planning, progressive elaboration. Everybody's doing what they're told in that system. Because there's so many dependencies and so much overhead. And it's such a big change, too. Nobody has freedom to decide. Yeah. And and it's a big change, right? So you got to put training wheels around it. Yeah. Um, Team-based, incremental, and iterative development, progressive elaboration, rolling wave planning, focused on small batches, all right, creating opportunities to learn. I would take that over the current state of Agile any day of the week. Yeah. Any day of the week. Um, I'll tell you something. So this is a story I, I haven't talked about in a while, but um, you know this. So I'm just kind of saying this for everybody else. But my wife, five years ago, di- got diagnosed with leukemia, right? 
And, and so we, we went through the treatment of that for about two years, got really intense the last six months, bone marrow transplant, all that kind of stuff. And she's about three and a half years post, um, post leukemia now and is, um, is recovered nicely. No evidence of disease, right? No, no reason to believe it's going to come back. So, right. Really a, really a, a cool blessing, right? It's good stuff. So, um, I tell the story because like, I watched how that team of people worked. And there were two people in that entire ward treating 30 patients that were responsible for the treatment plan of those 30 patients. And so it was Dr. Langston, Dr. Bloom, and they were like the center. They made all of the top level decisions. The people that were underneath them were super competent, super passionate, knew what they were doing to a certain point, did not have the experience, the insight, nor the acumen of Dr. Bloom and Dr. Langston, mm-hmm. period, hard stop, right? Um, and so what I realized is that I, I envisioned it as like concentric circles. There was like Bloom and Langston that kind of were the brains of it. And they had about 10 doctors that worked with them that were really smart doctors, right? I'm not saying they were, they weren't, there's right. nobody's a in the situation. They just didn't have the authority or the experience that Bloom and Langston did. But they were responsible for managing the implementation of mm-hmm. those of those directives. Right. And underneath that, you had the physician's assistants, and then you had registered nurses, and you had there's like this cascade to where like literally some technician who was right out of college, or maybe not even probably didn't have a degree, candidly, like an orderly, could come and give my wife a life-threatening chemotherapy pill but they weren't making any decisions about the deployment yeah. of that pill. Or the right? execution, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example. It's a little closer to the to the Agile community's heart. Um, you know, um, Dave Marquet wrote the book, Turn That Ship Around, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's been used, I think, inappropriately in the Agile community to, to demonstrate the power of, of empowering the people around you and, okay. and trust them to make good decisions and things like that. What I think it's lost in that is that those people are not being asked to build the nuclear submarine. They're not being asked to set the mission that the nuclear submarine's on. Right. They're not being asked to make strategic decisions about where that nuclear submarine goes within the confines of a well-engineered, um, multi-billion-dollar piece of machinery, and a incredibly strict kind of cascading set of intent, and a tremendous amount of training and experience in doing what they're doing. Yeah, they have a certain amount of degrees of freedom that they can exercise. Sure, do the right thing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And, and so what we hear as agilists when we read that book is you empower people. And I'm saying, wow, but you're the opposite in that book. Oh, what do you, what, well, but I, well, you and I are all out on the same page. And I've interviewed him about, I mean, a couple, three or four times. For sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I pick up on, there's a person who knows what they want, but has no awareness of how to get what they want. So they have to rely on the people around them. But that's not the whole story. But I know not it's not the whole story. story but right? like those people, those people that they're relying on to deliver it. Like, I don't know, like, like Dave Marquet doesn't necessarily know how to turn the screw in the engine room or right. to, how to drive the to drive the ship himself. But but again, where we mishandle that book is 
We're telling people they're responsible for building their own nuclear submarines and setting their own rules. No, you're responsible for getting me to this depth. They're, they're responsible, yeah, to get to the depth. And maybe they have some degrees of freedom as to which depth on, under certain conditions. How fast or slow, sure. Yeah. And so and so that's what I'm saying. So we focus on the empowerment of the people and the people doing the job making the decision. Yeah. And we under-index on the amount of structure and discipline and rigor that, that creates safety for them. Create that person and I give yeah. them safety to make that decision. 100%. Right. Yeah. That side of it doesn't get talked about. Right. And and what I'm suggesting is that our organizations are not in the same state of um, affairs. They're not in the same condition as that submarine. Yeah. The people are not as adequately trained. The constraints that they're operating in are not as sufficiently defined. Yeah. And so when I say something like systems and practices and culture, what I'm saying is that, yes, I want to give people um, on the team, they need to have some autonomy to decide who does the work, how much work gets done, how that work gets um, split across all the different people. Right. But the people on that team, they don't get to decide the deadlines or the market conditions or the strategy of the company. Right. You don't. Or, you don't give the keys to the Porsche to the sixteen-year-old and tell them to figure no, it out. No, they have they have decision rights within a frame. Yeah. And, and as, as Agilists, we are naive about the amount of work and effort it takes to create that frame. Yes. And and nobody's telling us, nobody's giving the typical Agilist boundaries for where what they say works. There's something, it's something, it's, you had asked me come to speak at a talk at a scrum gathering I don't think you could be at. Or maybe you were running the scrum gathering and you invited me or something. Okay. And I ended up at a scrum gathering doing a talk, which which doesn't happen very often unless somebody specifically asks me. Daniel Gulo asked me one time and, and I went and did a talk at a scrum gathering. And uh and I but I heard Brian, I think it was Brian Merrick and um Jeff Sutherland do a talk. And and is Brian's like like wrote a lot of the early books on agile architecture and things like that. Yeah. Um Jeff Sutherland, obviously inventor of Scrum, right? Yeah. Um and and something Brian said that I, it sticks with me. And and for most people, I might have to translate it, but he said, he said, we never intended emergence across class boundaries. Right. So, and let me, okay. let me explain that, right. Yeah, for you should explain. <laughs> because, right? yeah. because so, they don't know what classes are because well, so they didn't think have about to learn that. What, to do what, emer what emergence is, it's like emerge, like we talk about like in agile, we get into this mindset of like, well, we don't know everything. So it's like, we don't know anything. Yeah. Like architecture has to emerge, organizational design has to merge, complex behavior has to emerge, all these things. Um, when when Merrick said that comment, what he was talking about is, is like the class structure of an application is like the architecture of that application, right? Like how it's how its objects are organized. And and when we talk about emergence, he wasn't talking about emergence of the overall system. He was talking about emergence of, within of boundaries. code within that boundary. Yeah. Right? And you could take that on a lot of levels. Self-organization wasn't intended to be self-organization of thousands of people at scale. It's self-organization within the boundaries of a team. That yeah. team has inputs. It has the backlog. It has outputs, working tested software on regular intervals. Like I used to tell people all the time when I was doing more on the ground coaching, I don't have an opinion about how the team works internally unless it's not satisfying its external interface. 
right? Yeah. So the external interface of a team is, can I take a backlog? Mm -hmm. Can I process it on two-week intervals and, and reliably and predictably put a working tested increment of software out the backside of it? If I can't do that on a routine basis and I can't do it with a stable velocity, well, now I can go in and help the team with some techniques for how to do that. Yeah. But as a leader, that team should be a black box, but only if it meets. Only if it's delivery. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And so but but that's like a very nuanced understanding of, of organizations. It also assumes that the organization's in a state where the team can operate like that black box. And it has the maturity to, to understand how to operate like well, within that sure. idea. So, so when I say it's systems first, it's like we have to we have to. We have to have an organizational architecture. We have to have a way it works. We have to have the sub. We have to have the training. We have to have the people in the you roles. You have to satisfy the shareholders. Well, well, you got to do all that stuff, right? Yeah. And and as coaches, we're coming in and telling people, oh, managers are bad and and oh, they're not empowering you. And oh, you know, they're making it's like, yeah. and I'm being very dismissive of that. But again, the envelope we're having this conversation in is why are people deciding that they don't need that in their companies anymore? Well, okay. They're looking for a different way to approach agile because the 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 path that our industry is going down, like and, and I'm probably a little little uh uh what do they call it? salty over this, but it's like I haven't been able to get a talk selected in the agile conference for the last three years. Yeah. Like the agile conference doesn't want to hear what I have to say. Right, because they want to focus on practices and culture and the people and the teams, yeah, and yeah, yeah. all different stuff, and that's great. And you're telling them to but eat their lima beans, and they don't want to eat table. their lima beans right now. They're please. coming to this. They're coming to the agile conference to because this is industry experts telling them what to go do, and then they learn that and they go back into their companies, and they are yeah. totally ill-equipped to be able to deal yeah. with the complexities of a modern and emerging software organization. So they don't know what to do, right? Yeah. So why should I continue to employ them to create disruption in my organization? So switch to something familiar. All right. So let me, I'm going to ask you a question to kind of wrap it up. Okay. Okay. Do you think that on the, on the large companies are worse at this stuff than they were 10 years ago? Or are they behaving in a manner that is less likely to produce working tested software on a regular basis than they were 10 years ago. You know, man, that's on the whole, um, that's a complex question to answer. Um, I'm just, I'm seeing companies, companies doing stuff so much worse than they did 10 years ago. They're behaving well, like. So, so what's happening, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things that are running in parallel, right? The size and complexity of systems yeah. is, is getting immensely big. Right. The ability of any one person to hold it in their head mm -hmm. is is getting out of control. Um, I, I'm telling you, like this, this idea that we just trust and empower people and they'll figure it out. People are overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. And people get frozen in companies. So it's not a lack of trust. It's just it's overwhelm. It's too much to think of at once. It's. Overstimulation. Well, well it's, it's all of that stuff. So you, so you asked me the question: Is it getting better or worse? What I would say is that the complexity and the criticality of software is is getting immense. And okay. I think, and and the answer in all of this is architecture in such a way that big things get broken down into small things, minimize yeah. dependency, reduce the amount of orchestration necessary. 
right? That's the answer behind all of this stuff. It's the answer in governments, it's the answer in churches, it's the answer in society, it's the answer in families, it's the answer here, right? Because the size and complexity that we're driving towards is not cognitively manageable by anybody. All right. And so you see elements of it, right? You see it work in pockets. The smaller, more contained, less dependency environments we can create, you're seeing lots of success. I mean, there's a lot of great products being built. Yeah. Um, you see what Elon Musk is doing in Tesla and SpaceX. You see what the government's doing with its open agile digital initiatives. Like people are starting to realize the whole, the whole industry around cloud migration. Um, you know, it's a little goofy as I start to get more into that. Um, but but this idea of breaking big things into smaller services that can be scaled is is a worthy endeavor. How it's being done, I think there's some there's some opportunity for improvement. But but the this idea of breaking big things into smaller things that can be managed more yeah. effectively and independently is the answer. And yeah. again, um, you know, what I challenge the agile community with is it's like it's like that king for a day thing. Like if you, yeah. if you, if you take away the cultural boogeyman and you say, okay, you have the culture you want. What is your hypothesis on how we're going to deliver the software? Okay. Right. Um, and you work backwards from there, you start to get answers. But I'm telling you, there are there are a percentage of us that do not believe that capitalistic pursuit of profit is the right motive that it's all about the working environment of the people. Like if that's the starting place, that's yeah. a very difficult place to come from. Okay. If we can agree that producing software on regular intervals so that we can sell it to people that want to buy it is our goal. Then we have to ask ourselves is what is the right, what is the right combination of um, organizational structure, governance, metrics, practices, environmental constraints, culture, what is the, what is the system that's most likely going to get us there? And if we can stop pointing fingers between the leaders and the people or the people and the leaders and get kind of a class warfare, the hierarchical warfare, like all this nonsense out of the system. Yeah. And we can start talking about like what what is our hypothesis on on what are the attributes of a system that give us the results we want? We can start working our way backwards into this. And if the Agile community is smart, that's where it's going to go. But dude, we've been doing this for 13 years. And like for the most I feel like part, it's getting worse. Well, for the most part, it's like I don't even see anybody trying to compete with us in the marketplace of ideas. I think most people just think we're wrong. Big consultancies, small consultancies, agile coaches, a lot of companies. Like if you just think we're wrong, then then that's fine. Right. But but all I'm doing is I'm just saying, like, it's like give me an alternative. That isn't hand wavy. Trust I think maybe you present a, a a challenge or a problem that is more uncomfortable than some of the other problems, and well, that they sure, choose the easier problem because it's you want one that's. I mean, it's lima beans. You want them to eat lima beans, and and they want to eat like sweet corn. Well, well, sure, it would all be nice, right? And so, and so here's the thing, right? If you want to go work in a company where you have a small team of people like go start your own company right yeah. go do a startup right you have if it you have any success and you have to scale you're going to be right back into it right yeah. um you know maybe you get to go work in a skunk works team in a large company right cool but if you're going to do anything that's large and complex and um anything you know, deeply impactful on a large scale something like that right competing yeah. 
resources, um, you know, uh, you know, lack, you know, constraints, anything like that. Like, that's just what I challenge people. It's like anything that you think should be true in an organization, like, okay, there's a set of conditions. I think they should be true. Like organizations should operate this. Like even something simple, like, like leaders should not be so command and control. Like yeah. what are they supposed to do? Right. Um, as long as they're accountable for that software going out, it's, they, they've got to figure out a way to, to yeah. get software out. Right. And so, you know, just to put a bow on it, I, um, it's like, it's like that's what I think it is. Is I think I think the industry is starting to realize that that there and and, and there's a lot of companies that we work into where coaches are valued and um, and scrum masters are valued, right? And they can play a role in it. But but I don't think the agile community is appropriately dealing with the complexity that these these large organizations are are struggling through, and and they're tired of the hand wavy bullshit, basically. Yeah. And and I think what we're likely seeing is that companies that in a very well-meaning way wanted to go to Agile, they bought into the belief system that these coaches could help right. and for the companies with sufficiently complex problems to solve and sufficiently naive Agile co coaches at the helm of solving them, we're starting to see those people... Correct. Yeah. And, and I don't think we're going to go back to, I don't think in any of these companies, whether we call them technical project managers or program, whatever, what I think we'll see is I think we'll see team-based incremental and iterative. I think we'll see rolling wave planning, progressive elaboration. I think the industry has decided that, that small things are better than big things. Um, large batch sizes are worse than small batch sizes. More feedback is better, right? There's certain things that the agile communities won the argument on. Now, does that get, um, implemented in a total, you know, do it your own way, figure it out on your own, empower the people kind of way, or does it get implemented more top down? Yeah. I suspect what we're going to do is we're going to see, we're going to see certain aspects of agile be implemented more top down. And I think that's what you're saying. Okay. I think companies where the kind of the kumbaya approach hasn't worked. Yeah. Taking a different approach. But I, I think a lot of the fundamentals of agile you'll still see there. Again, okay. as long as we're finding Agile the same way, right? Yeah. If Agile is a social movement, yeah, Agile's gone. If Agile's incremental, team-based, small batch, lean, like I, I don't think that's going anyplace. Okay. So, okay. Cool. Mike, thank you for taking time for this today. I really appreciate it. Um, You're very welcome. You got me wound up, man. This is something I'm good. passionate about. So. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Bye.